Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, when I was finishing college, um, I knew that I wanted to be a pastor. I had received a call to pastoral ministry when I was 16, and I brought that call with me to college. And I knew that to become a pastor, I had to attend divinity school or seminary. And there were two seminaries on my radar. Uh, The first was Duke Divinity School in Durham, North Carolina, and that's where I ultimately ended up going. It's also where Pastor Will attended seminary. Uh, The second was Candler School of Theology, which is a part of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, there were three friends who were in college with me. Uh, They were religion majors like I was. They also wanted to attend seminary at one of these schools. And so the four of us, during the fall break of my senior year, my last year of college, the four of us decided to go on a road trip to visit both of these schools. The first school that we went to uh, was Duke in Durham, North Carolina. And then on the way back to Florida, uh, we went to Atlanta and we visited Candler. Well, while we were in Atlanta uh, visiting Candler, somebody in the admissions office mentioned to us that the Dalai Lama was in town. How many of you have ever heard of the Dalai Lama before? Really, all of us have. Uh, He's a famous figure in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, Tibetan Buddhists actually believe that the Dalai Lama is a divine being who has become incarnate. He's become a human being uh, to enlighten us on how to escape suffering. Now, truth be told, I don't believe all that as a Christian. I think the Dalai Lama is an ordinary human being like anybody. Uh, But because he's so famous and well-known, we thought that it would be interesting to hear him speak. So we were told that he would be speaking uh, in this large outdoor area in Atlanta. So we went. There must have been thousands of people there. We heard him speak. If you've heard him speak before, he's very engaging. He's funny. He's relatable. And then when his talk was over, we were walking out with the crowd. And there was this Christian preacher. Maybe some of you see where this is going. And he had a megaphone. And he began to scream through the megaphone. And he was telling everybody, don't listen to the Dalai Lama. Don't believe in Tibetan Buddhism. Only believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Otherwise, he said, you are in danger of the fires of hell. And there was this group of guys walking just beside us. And the one gentleman said to his friends, well, that's Christians for you. They're convinced they're the only ones who are right when it comes to religion and that everybody else in this world is wrong. All these years later, I still remember all that with perfect clarity. I remember that man's comments and how annoyed he was by that preacher with the megaphone. Well, let's be honest. We Christians don't necessarily have the best reputation when it comes to being tolerant of other people's religious beliefs. And then on top of that, we live in a culture that convinces us not to talk about religion. In fact, were there the two topics we're told not to bring up in a conversation? Politics and religion. Why? Because these things are so uh, divisive. So sometimes it's tempting for us to avoid the subject of other religions altogether. But then on the other hand, many of us, and I definitely include myself in this category, many of us are followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is important to us. He's the foundation of our lives. And Jesus represents a particular religion, Christianity. And so the question for us becomes, 
How do we make sense of other religions? Are people who practice other religions wrong, and we're the only ones who are right? Or instead, are all religions equally valid? Do all paths lead to God, and Christianity is just one path among many that we can take to get to God? Is God present? Is God active? Is God moving in the lives of those who practice other religions or no religion at all? And then finally, what ultimately happens to those who are not followers of Jesus Christ when they take their last breath and they pass away? Uh, these are the questions that we wonder about. So we are now in the sixth week of our seven-part series uh, that we're calling Help My Unbelief. It's hard to believe, but we're actually coming to the very end of this series. We're going to wrap it up next week. And in this message series, um, our congregation has been exploring difficult questions of faith. And so today's question, as we can tell, has to do with other religions. This is how the question goes. Let's read this together on the count of three. One, two, three. How does a Christian make sense of other religions? How does a Christian make sense of other religions? Um, over the years as a pastor, I have received a number of notes from people uh, in the different congregations that I've served. I want to share with us a note that I received some, from somebody who attended my last congregation. She emailed this to me one day. Uh, it's up here on the screen. She said, while I was in college, I really struggled with other religions. I took an Eastern religious traditions class, and I was fascinated by Buddhism and Hinduism, but I was not sold on anything, she says, because I believed there were too many things. How could so many religions exist that contradicted each other so much? I often thought to myself that no matter what I picked, there would still be millions of people believing something different, and not everyone could be right, so in fact, most people must be wrong, right? I still struggle with this somewhat, because as passionately as I believe that Jesus died for us, I know that other people just as passionately believe something completely different. Is there a right and wrong? Is it possible for all of us to be right? I think this person does a pretty good job naming the tension that plenty of us feel. And so again, the question that we're going to explore this morning is how does a Christian make sense of other religions? Well, this is not hard to believe, but not everybody is in agreement with regards to this question. Does that surprise you? Um, over the years, different responses have been put forward. Uh, Adam Hamilton, who's a, a well-known United Methodist pastor, he preaches and teaches in Kansas City area, um, he wrote this book a while back, called Christianity and World Religions. And in fact, Hannah King, uh, who's on our staff, she's leading a study on this book on Wednesday nights. I know Phyllis, you're a part of that. Some others in our church are a part of that too. Well, in one of the opening chapters of this book, um, Hamilton lays out three perspectives, three perspectives that Christians have given in response to this question, how do we make sense of other religions? So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to highlight these perspectives. I'm going to talk about them, and I'm also going to evaluate them with you. And so if you're taking notes during the sermon, uh, this is a good place to write things down. The first perspective is what Hamilton calls the pluralist perspective. The pluralist perspective. And the pluralist perspective holds in a nutshell that all religions are basically the same. It really doesn't matter what religion we practice, so long as we're sincere. It doesn't matter if we're Christian, if we're Buddhist, if we're Muslim, if we're Hindu, if we're Jewish, because all religions are expressions of the same truth, and all religions ultimately take us to God. God is like a mountain, 
this perspective says. Maybe you've heard that before. God is like a mountain, and we climb this mountain in a variety of ways. Uh, there's a story that's been told to support the pluralist perspective. It's called the story of the blind men and the elephant. And I think we got a picture of this. So the story goes that one day there were these blind men, and they came upon this elephant, and they all began to grab the elephant. The first blind man grabbed the elephant by the leg, and he said, this thing that I'm feeling, I, I, I can't see it, but it feels it's round and it's, and it's big. It has to be a tree. And the other blind man grabbed the elephant by the trunk, and he said, no, no, no. This thing, it's long, it's coarse, it has to be a snake. And then finally, a third blind man grabbed the elephant by the tail, and he said, no, this is a rope. And the moral of the story is that each of the blind men was only feeling part of the elephant, not the elephant as a whole. And similarly, each of the religions of the world, like Islam, Christianity, etc., each of the religions of the world gives us a part of God, but not God as a whole. So therefore, all religions are equally valid. Now, on the surface, the pluralist perspective seems appealing because it's trying to absolve the tension between the various religions of the world. But if we seriously think about it, there are problems with this perspective. The first problem is this, number one. It comes off as unintentionally arrogant. It comes off as unintentionally arrogant. And I say unintentionally because this perspective is trying so hard not to be arrogant. This perspective um, is trying to accommodate everybody, but in trying to accommodate everybody, it comes off as arrogant. Think about the story of the blind man and the elephant. If we really believe that story to be true, then what we're really saying is that everybody who practices a different religion is blind, but then what are we saying about ourselves? We're the person who sees. How can we say that each of the blind men experiences part of the elephant unless we know the entire elephant? How can we say that each of the world religions only experiences a part of God unless we know all of God? And so we are putting ourselves on a platform above others. That's one problem. It's unintentionally arrogant. A second problem is that it belittles or trivializes religious differences. The fact of the matter is, there are significant differences between the religions of the world. And some of these differences can't be reconciled. Take, for example, Judaism and Christianity. Now, obviously, Judaism and Christianity shares a lot in common. Uh, Christianity began out of Judaism, and in most ways, Jewish folks are our siblings in the faith. But when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is really important to Christianity, when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, Jews and Christians part ways. For the most part, Jews believe that Jesus was a good teacher, he was a prophet, he was a wise sage, but for Christians, Jesus is so much more. Uh, yes, Jesus is all those things, but he's also God incarnate. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the eternal Son of God. Um, he's God in the flesh who has come to save us, rescue us, deliver us from our sins. And so there are big differences between Judaism and Christianity. There are also big differences between Christianity and Islam. Islam teaches that Jesus was never crucified, that he never died on the cross, that he never rose from the dead. Now, for Christians, are the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus take-it-or-leave-it doctrines? No. They're foundational to our faith. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that if Jesus Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then there's no point to what we're doing right now. All of us are wasting our time. 
and we of all people are most to be pitied. Or what about Christianity and Buddhism? Classical Buddhism, now there are a lot of variations of Buddhism, but classical Buddhism is an atheistic religion. The Buddha, his name was Siddhartha Gautama. You might have heard about him if you took a world religions class. He lived uh, a few hundred years before Jesus. He was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. Christians, on the other hand, we believe in God. And we don't just believe in some generic God, some general God. We believe in a particular God, the God who is Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, I end every one of my sermons uh, by saying, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, because that's the God in whom we believe and whom we put our faith and our hope and our trust. And then finally, what about Christianity and Hinduism? Well, Hindus teach reincarnation, that how you act in one life affects your karma, and your karma affects how you're reincarnated in the next life. Do Christians teach reincarnation? No. We believe that we only have one life, that's it, and our life is a gift from God. It is not to be wasted because none of us know how much time we have on this earth. And so the first problem with this perspective is that it's unintentionally arrogant. The second problem, it trivializes religious differences. And then finally, number three, uh, it devalues the church's mission. Because after the resurrection, Jesus gave us as his followers a very specific mission. Uh, listen with me to what Jesus says here in Matthew's gospel. This is Matthew 28, verse 19. Uh, this is often called the Great Commission. Jesus says, Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus told us that our charge is to make disciples. That's why we exist. That's what our purpose is. But what's the point of making disciples if all religions are the same? And so when it comes down to it, this first perspective, it's well-intentioned, but it has serious problems. Well, a second perspective that Hamilton lifts up in his book um, is what he calls the exclusivist perspective. The exclusivist perspective. And the exclusivist perspective is the exact opposite of the pluralist perspective. The pluralist perspective is over here. The exclusivist perspective is over here. The exclusivist perspective teaches that all religions, other than Christianity, are false, wrong. And furthermore, anybody who does not consciously accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior in this life will be cut off from God forever and condemned to hell for all eternity. Those who hold this perspective, like the gentleman with the megaphone that I heard back in Atlanta, those who hold this perspective will point to certain passages in the New Testament like Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it's up here on the screen. Uh, this is the Apostle Peter speaking. Remember, Peter was a disciple. This is what he's saying. He says, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Uh, another passage that proponents of this viewpoint will point to is John 14, 6. Uh, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus told him, he's talking to Thomas there. Jesus told Thomas, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Let's pause here for a moment and ask ourselves a question. Is that how these two passages were intended to be read? Were they really intended to write off people 
who practice other religions. I had a professor in seminary who would say, a text without a context is a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. A text without a context is a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. Truth be told, other religions is not the discussion of either one of these passages. It's not the context. For example, in Acts chapter 4, where Peter makes that bold statement, there is salvation in no one else. God has given us no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Peter's not talking to people who practice other religions. He's not talking to Buddhists. He's not talking to Muslims. He's not talking to Hindus. He's talking exclusively to Jewish people. And not just Jewish people. He's talking exclusively to the religious leaders about Jesus. That in Jesus we find salvation. Or what about John 14? Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, Jesus is talking to the disciples. They're in the upper room. They've just shared the Last Supper. He's dropped a bombshell. He says, I'm going to be... Uh, I'm going to leave you, depart from you. And the disciples are, are, are nervous and they're anxious and they're scared because they want Jesus to stick around. And he's reminding them, hey, through me, you have salvation. I am the Messiah. I'm your connection to God. And furthermore, if the exclusivist perspective is true, then folks, what about those who never hear the gospel? What about those who live in some remote part of the world Missionaries never come to their country, and so they pass away having never heard about Jesus. God's going to cut them off forever? Condemn them to hell? Or what about somebody whose only exposure to Christianity is done in a toxic way? Like from an abusive parent who beats their child as they tell their child about Jesus. Unfortunately, that has happened, and it continues to happen in some context. And so because of the abuse that they endured, this person chooses to reject Jesus. God's going to cut them off too? Don't mishear what I'm saying. I firmly believe that salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. But my issue with this perspective is that it's too rigid and it's too narrow. And it tends to overlook parts of the Bible where God clearly has a heart for everybody, particularly the people who have never heard of God or don't personally know him. Do you remember the story of Jonah in the Old Testament? All of us know the story of Jonah, right? Even if we're not a church-going person, we're familiar with that story. Um, Jonah was a prophet. In other words, he was a messenger. And one day, God came to the prophet Jonah, and God told Jonah that he wanted him to go where? To Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. Uh, the Assyrian Empire was oppressing the Israelites. Jonah had zero desire to go to Nineveh because the Assyrians were oppressive people. He was an Israelite. They were enemies. So instead of listening to God, what did Jonah do? He got in a boat. And where did the boat go? Or where was it headed? The other way, we, got, we have this on the map. The boat was headed for Tarshish in what today would be Spain. Now, this was the entirety of the world as people knew it back then. They had no knowledge of the Americas. They had no knowledge of Antarctica or anything like that. This was the entirety of the world as they knew it. So Nineveh's over here in the east. Tarshish is in the west. In other words, that was like going to Timbuktu. Total opposite direction. So here's jo uh, Jonah. He's going to Tarshish. He's on this boat. Well, God's upset because Jonah doesn't listen to God. 
And the message, by the way, was to tell the people of Nineveh that God was going to destroy them because of their evil ways. So Jonah's on this boat going to Tarshish. God sends this storm upon the ship, and the storm is so bad, it threatens to break the ship apart. The sailors are terrified. They're crying out to their own gods. There's irony going on here. Jonah's a follower of God. He's not crying out to God, but these sailors are, are, are followers of different gods, but they're crying out. And then finally, Jonah says to the sailors, I'm responsible for this storm. Toss me overboard. So they take Jonah, they toss him overboard, and at that moment, this large fish comes, swallows Jonah up. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for how long? For three days and three nights. That's a long time to be in the belly of a fish. Three seconds would be a long time. He was in there three days, three nights. Well, on the third day, the fish spit. And actually, the more literal translation is the fish vomited. So the fish vomited Jonah, along with whatever else was in the fish's stomach, onto dry land. Jonah probably smelled really bad when that happened. And then for a second time, God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. Tell the people that I'm upset with them. I'm going to destroy them because of their evil ways. This time, Jonah listens to God. And so he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches the shortest sermon that has ever been preached. I'm sorry, I will not preach the shortest sermon that you've ever heard, all right? But Jonah preaches, I think, the shortest sermon that has ever been preached. Just five words in the Hebrew, eight words in the English. Forty days, and Nineveh will be no more. Forty days, and Nineveh will be no more. Well, much to Jonah's surprise, the people of Nineveh respond to his message. They repent. They turn from their evil ways. So what does God do? God decides to not unleash fury upon the people of Nineveh because of their wickedness. Was Jonah happy about that? No. Listen to what it says here. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, this change of plans, in other words, God was going to destroy Nineveh. He decides not to. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah. And he became very angry, not just a little bit angry. He was really angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Then I say, before I left home, that thee would do this, Lord. That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. What's going on here? Jonah throws a temper tantrum. I'm a parent of four-year-olds. I have a PhD when it comes to temper tantrums, okay? I am an authority on this subject matter. Jonah throws a temper tantrum because he feels that God is way too merciful, way too compassionate. The story of Jonah is a good reminder that God's heart is filled with compassion for everybody, but especially the people who don't know God in a personal way, who have never heard of God before. God doesn't want to condemn people. God doesn't want to cut them off. Heck, the whole reason God came to this world in Jesus Christ, what is it saying, John 3, 16? For God so loved the world. The whole reason God came to this world, it was to radically bring people in. So to recap, the pluralist perspective is not helpful. The exclusivist perspective isn't helpful. So what's the alternative? The alternative is what we would call the inclusivist perspective. And the inclusivist perspective is built on prevenient grace. All of us should be familiar with this term, prevenient grace. Prevenient, uh, we've mentioned this before, it comes from the Latin that means 
to come before, to proceed. And provenient grace refers to the idea that in Jesus Christ, God is actively moving in every person's life by the power of the Spirit, regardless of who that person is, what their background is, or what religion they practice or don't practice. God's grace always goes ahead of us. Which means, and this is up here on the screen, it is not our job as Christians to bring God to people. Folks, if we think our job is to bring God to people, we are sorely mistaken. Rather, our job is to recognize that in some mysterious way that we can't fully articulate, God is already moving in that person's life. And all we must do is identify and name God's activity. When I think of prevenient grace, and um, our staff have heard me share this story before, I think of Helen Keller. Remember learning about Helen Keller when you were in school? She was born in the 1800s. She contracted scarlet fever when she was 19 months old. Most people would die of scarlet fever. Thankfully, she lived, but her body was affected. She was blind and deaf. She couldn't communicate with people. Well, when she was a child, her parents hired a tutor. Do you remember the tutor's name? Ann Sullivan. We got a picture of this up here on the screen. And Ann Sullivan began to work with Helen Keller and taught her a method of communication. One day she took a doll. You can see the doll up here. She took a doll, placed it in her hands, and then she spelled out the letters D-O-L-L, doll. And then next she took her hand, she put it underneath a water pump, began to pump out water, and then she spelled out W-A-T-E-R, water. Finally, it clicked. She could actually communicate with people. Well, her parents, who were devout Christians, they took her to this minister whose name was Philip Brooks. Um, Philip Brooks was a very famous minister back in the 1800s. And in fact, Philip Brooks and Helen Keller would correspond with each other um, long after he first met her. And Philip Brooks began to tell Helen Keller about the God revealed in Jesus Christ. Thus far, people hadn't been able to tell her about the God revealed in Jesus. And so Philip Brooks had the honor to do that. So as he was telling Helen Keller all about Jesus, he could tell that she was getting animated. She was getting visibly excited. This big smile came across her face, and then finally she interrupted him. She said, I knew him. I knew him. But I never knew his name. I knew him. I knew him. But I never knew his name. Philip Brooks didn't have to bring God to Helen Keller. All he had to do was identify the God who was already moving in her life. That's provenient grace. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 71, verse 6, as he talks about this concept. He says, yes, you, talking to God here, you have been with me from birth. From my mother's womb, you have cared for me. No wonder I am always praising you. The psalmist doesn't say, you have been with me, God, from the moment that I acknowledged you. From the moment I called upon your name, he says, you have been with me from birth. This is true for everybody, including those who practice other religions or no religion at all, that God is with them in some mysterious way. And not only is God with them, but God is actively reaching out to them. 
to draw them to himself. A good example of this is the Magi. Remember the Magi who visited Jesus when he was a child? What we often forget is the Magi, this is really important, the Magi were not Jewish. They were not followers of the God of Israel. The shepherds who saw Jesus, they were Jewish. The Magi were not Jewish. Matthew tells us that the Magi came from the east, probably Persia, about 1,200 miles away in what today would be Iran. A popular religion in Persia during that period was Zoroastrianism. Uh, Zoroastrianism. And in fact, most scholars believe that the Magi were Zoroastrian priests because a key feature of that religion was looking at the stars to discern God's movement. Jewish people didn't look at the stars to discern God's movement. They considered that to be astrology, paganism. But think about this. God met the Magi and their own religious system and from there led them to the child who would come for everybody. This isn't all paths lead to God. This is Jesus as the path that God has lovingly taken to come to all human beings, even those we least expect. Folks, we will never fully comprehend the profound reach of our God. This reaches for everybody. There's one more question I want to address because I know that it's on everybody's mind. All right, so what about people who practice another religion or no religion at all? What happens to them when they pass away? Assuming they pass away having never received Jesus. Here's my personal answer. I leave those matters to God. I leave those matters to God. And I am very comfortable and confident and hopeful as I do that, knowing what I know about the God of love revealed in Jesus Christ. Folks, there is a profound lesson that I've come to discover over the course of my life. There is a God, and I'm not him. Can we praise God for that? There is a God, and I'm not him. It is never my place to evaluate somebody's personal standing with God, especially given the fact that God is already moving in that person's life in ways that I don't fully recognize. It is simply my job to love people unconditionally, to preach salvation in Jesus unapologetically, and to call attention to God's pervening grace. So I'm going to stay in my lane, focus on those things, and leave everything else to God. And so I end my sermon today with these words from Charles Wesley. We often quote John Wesley, one of the founders of Methodism. Charles, his younger brother, was also a founder of Methodism. This is what he said in his hymn, Universal Redemption. And shall I, Lord, confine thy love as not to others free, and may not every sinner prove the grace that found out me. And shall I, Lord, confine thy love as not to others free? And may not every sinner prove the grace that found out me. We didn't find this grace. None of us did. This grace found us. And this grace is actively reaching out to all people. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As our band prepares to come back forward, I want to invite you at this time to join me in a word of prayer. God, we didn't find this grace. None of us did. Instead, you found us. When we were lost in sin and brokenness, you came into this world in Jesus Christ. You came in a very particular, specific way, not a generic way, not a general way, and you came for the reason to draw all human beings to you, people from every race and tribe and nation and tongue, because the reality is, God, that all of us have been made and created in your image, and you love us all equally in ways that we will never fully understand. God, we celebrate this morning your prevenient grace, the way in which you are moving in everybody's life in ways that we don't fully see. And we pray that as your people, as your church, that you would empower us, enable us to call attention to that prevenient grace, as Philip Brooks did when he was speaking with Helen Keller. And God, just to identify your activity in their life, God, thank you so much for your rich and your deep and your abiding love. We pray that this morning we would be able to love you in return, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to share your truth with all people. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.